0: Welcome to another episode of With Purpose. My guest today is Alex Vinicor. He's co-founder and CEO of BetaShares, an ETF manager with over $25 billion under management. He also, as you'll hear, tells the story of how he helped to set up the United Ukraine Appeal. And I'll let Alex tell the story around that. But it's it's quite a remarkable story. And um, I think you'll find this conversation really interesting, hear about Alex's background, how he came to Australia, made a success of himself here, um, and then I was gone to do something with real purpose and how he's doing that in, a, in an immediate way to help people out, but then also in a thoughtful way to help people with a, a longer-term focus in mind. Enjoy this episode.
1: Alex, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be with you, David. Thank
0: you very much for coming in. I appreciate it. Um... We're going to have, I think, a really interesting conversation here. And I wouldn't mind starting with just, just learning a little bit more about your early life uh, and your family background, which I think helps to inform
1: the rest of the conversation. Uh, sure. I was born in uh, Soviet Ukraine um, and grew up, uh, spent, spent a big part of my life um, uh, in that country and uh, immigrated uh, to Australia in the mid nineties, in 1994. So I've been living in Australia now for just over 29 years. Uh, But the early days in uh, Soviet Ukraine were definitely interesting.
0: Very different to your life here. I think you've written about that, or or you've been interviewed about that previously. and a very different environment in terms of what you were permitted to do, or how you might start a business and stuff like that. But um, yeah, tell, tell us a bit more about what 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 was life like there.
1: Yeah. Well, look, uh, Soviet Union was an was an interesting uh, place uh, to grow up in. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, lots of restrictions, of course, on lots of things. But um, uh, on the flip side, uh, growing up and going to school there uh, provided um, some some amazing learning opportunities. Um, you know the Soviet schooling system was was you know it was a very um, uh, it was a very bifurcated one in the sense that you were either a great student um, and if you're a great student you know you're typically good at maths and good at sciences um, or you were not basically and if you're not it um, doesn't matter what what you know um, whether you're good at art whether you're good at languages. Um, it just wasn't really appreciated mm-hmm. there, so I was I was in the lucky category um, <laughs> uh, because I I was just born you know sort of with a bit of uh, uh, a bit of uh, interest uh, in sciences and that, And so I was half decent at it, um, so that definitely helped. Um, look, I mean, my upbringing more generally um, was a very was a very good one, even though it was a poor country. Um, you know, and people were more or less equally poor, basically, Mm. uh, you know, growing up in that, uh, you know, in that place. I grew up in a very loving family, so I had a very warm and caring environment. I also had an environment around me which um, made me appreciate um, the small things in life, basically. I mean, my family, um, um, you know, went through the World War II, um, you know, sort of some of my family was unfortunately, um, uh, was unfortunately... Um, not able to, um, was uh, not able to survive, basically Mm. the persecutions, uh, you know, from the Nazis. um, And, um, you know, sort of, I really grew up with a real appreciation of life and the real appreciation of family and the real appreciation, um, you know, of the small things, basically. Um, Mm. So that uh, was important as part of my upbringing and that's still very important uh, part of who I am today.
0: And you must have alongside that,
1: mathematical scientific analytical
0: um part of your makeup had from an early age i'm assuming and quite an entrepreneurial and creative side because of what you've gone on to do um in later life um did do you did we did you think you had that all along or did that blossom
1: later in life Look, it was probably – it's a really good question, and I don't quite have an easy answer to it. I mean, one thing I do remember very uh, vividly uh, and very clearly is that I, I just remember that nothing was allowed um, uh, in Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. there was no concept of a private enterprise, basically. Everything yeah. was owned by the state. And creative ideas um, were really uh, not just not rewarded. I mean, they were they were essentially, um, you know, hunted down and, and frowned mm-hmm. upon. So mm-hmm. – Sounds um, a lot like Corporate Australia, actually, I yeah. just say that lightheartedly. <laughs> Look, um, so uniformity was really, um, you know, sort of was really encouraged and, mm. and anything innovative or creative was not. And I certainly remember when I was growing up, my grandfather, who himself had lost both of his parents, um, uh, you know, when he, when he was only 11, basically, in uh, the beginning of uh, World War Two. I mean, he um, ended up sort of building a life and, and building a... Um, you know, a career for himself. And, and he always had the... I, I remember speaking with him a lot about it. He always had ideas. He always had interests. But but essentially, it was very suppressed mm. in that environment. So as I was growing up, I certainly was dreaming about uh, an opportunity um you know sort of one day um you know sort of to be um you know either be able to build a business or either be able to be creative or to do something interesting but of course i had no idea how life is going to turn out um no. and the fact that um obviously um you know later on in my life we we ended up uh moving to australia which which has obviously been quite a uh quite a um you know quite a um, um fundamental uh shift yeah in 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 My future. You've
0: almost had. You talked. to Use the word bifurcated. You've almost had a bifurcated life, in this, haven't you? In in, in a sense, two very different worlds and mm. existences. Um, so, talking about that that move. Obviously, you've just set out. Um, many doors were closed. Avenues were closed off to you. The you know you were stifled in many senses. Any anyone that was minded in the way that you were, or, or the creative abilities and wanted to express them would be in the same situation. And then you find yourself in Australia, which is a a very different setting. Um, What was your first impression when you came here of of, um, the opportunity and and the main differences?
1: Well, first of all, um, I'll just go back, if I may, sure. um, just on the creative part. So the creative part is interesting, right? Because in business, you were not allowed to express it, but there were lots of other areas where people were being creative. Like people were being creative in art. Right. People were being. I was certainly uh, trying to be creative in chess. I, I really grew up with a with a passion and mm-hmm. interest for, um, you know, kind of for. Um, you know, chess uh, in particular, because it was, you know, you can play around, you can, you can plan, you can make moves. Mm. Um, and again, it, it kind of uh, bonded well with my interest in, in, in mathematics, probably in some, um, you know, sort of in some ways. Um, mm. but, but of course, coming to Australia, uh, completely, completely different environment. It was eye-opening, first of all, just to see people smile on the streets. <laughs> uh, that was that yeah. was I remember. Not that. really funny, but yes, yeah. yeah, uh, it, it was just it was just a big difference. Um, you know, people in in the Soviet Union didn't really smile to each other. Mm. Um, you know, they just had like a very serious, you know, frown, basically, a very serious face, um, and it was just odd. And I remember at the beginning. Uh, you know, in the first few months, uh, you know, coming to Australia was like a real shock because you look at people's faces and they've got happiness in their face. <laughs> I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah, that says uh, a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. I just remember it stood out. You know, it just stood out. Um, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And and of course, of course, you know, the warmth on on, on people's faces um, in Australia is is really followed through. Uh, you know, with the warmth of personalities. Um, you know, with the openness that we have. Uh, you know, as a country. So uh, I, was, I was incredibly, incredibly lucky that my parents had the wisdom um, to make the decision to immigrate um, uh, to Australia. I was um, just about to turn 16 uh, at the time. Mm. And um, I've just experienced, um, you know, just incredible, you know, generosity of spirit, um, you know, welcoming environment. And of course it was, you know, it, we, we had some difficulties. Mm. I mean, we came to Australia... Didn't speak English, etc. So there was some there were some things to learn uh, and mm. some things to get on top of, but um, it's just been incredibly, uh, you know, welcoming, and and the experience of settling into the country uh, for for our family um, in particular has just been so um, it's just been so smooth.
0: Yeah, that's great great to hear. I, I came here myself as a backpacker originally uh, about twenty eight years ago, so similar kind of time frame. I spent. You're, years, still a baby. But, You're still a baby well, uh, compared to me, obviously. Correct, correct. And um, I ended up coming back here about four years away and then I've I lived here for about you know, 22, 23 years. Um, so I, could, I can identify uh, myself with some of the things you've said.
1: Now um, – Your English ac- – your, your accent, I was going to say, uh, is, is almost almost as bad as mine. Well, I live in that. <laughs> I live in that place where everybody,
0: after all these years, still laughs at the way I speak, particularly if I say I'm going to the pub – on a Monday, you know, for a curry, <laughs> or something like that. Um, but then I go back to England, they'll laugh at the way I speak. So wherever I go, I've got a funny accent. So um, anyhow, to, to the to the next point, Alex, you, I have speaking, spoken previously about um, feeling this the sense of a fire hose of opportunities. And you went into business, you actually, you actually went into business, or at least the beta shares part of your career, I think kicked off around about 2010, so you'd have been in the planning phase before that. That wasn't, having been here at that time, an easy time, to to necessarily set up a business that was going to attract capital because we were in the wake of the GFC, and I, I remember it was a fairly kind of average time, you know, um, in financial markets, you know, um, as, and the economy as well. You could say so. How how did it how did it come to be that you set up that business, and and how was it in the early days?
1: Look like all. Uh, stories um you know of, of, of starting a business it really starts with nothing um so we well and truly started with nothing i um um i've been thinking about starting a business for a while um, and i've had some incredible incredible um uh, fortune to be working with some some really interesting and very smart people that i was able to learn from in um in earlier parts of my career I had figured for a while uh, that there's an opportunity to build uh, a business in the area that, that, that I started, which is exchange-traded funds. Um, um, I had looked at the market around the world. I looked at the Australian market. And I had a feeling that there's going to be there's going to a good time at some stage. Um, of course, knowing when the right time is, you know, nobody really knows that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you quite rightly pointed out it was a terrible time uh, in a way. Uh, to be starting in the sense that everybody was just, you know, just really negative on on the, on the world and on the future, yeah. and I certainly had a number of conversations with some of my friends who thought that I'm nuts, basically, uh, you know, starting a, an investment business like basically just after the global financial crisis, which almost wiped out the, mm. you know, sort of the, you know, sort of financial or banking system. Uh, but look, uh, at the end of the day, I figured I'm still young enough. Um, you know, I've got an interesting idea, or well, I thought it was an interesting idea. And I had some really great people around me, um, some of them are my university friends and some of them are people that I've just met um, you know, through my earlier part of my career. And I thought, look, if I'm ever gonna do something like that, um, you know, this, is my, this is my chance, this is my opportunity. And um, yeah, we got started. Uh, you know, we got started, of course, from, um, uh, you know, from the beginning, we had nothing. Um, the business of managing people's money is really a business of trust. Um, and trust is something that takes a very long time uh, to earn. In fact, you never you never stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to earn trust every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, even today, obviously, yep. twelve years since since you know sort of um, I kicked things off with uh, you know with the team, we earn the trust of our clients every single day. So it's definitely something that's taken us a while. Um, in the early days, you know, we um, had to wear out a lot of shoe leather. You had to go and see a lot of people, and you had to tell the story. And, and again, people were very generous with their time, but, um, but they were uh, very cautious uh, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of uh, following through with, with, with backing it with money. Again, because it's a, it's a game of trust and it takes a long time to learn um, and it get, takes a long time to, um, you know, to deliver, basically. So our approach has always been to under-promise and over-deliver. Mm. Uh, we've gone about things in small steps, um, and again, that to a large extent probably reflects my upbringing. You know, I always, um, you know, grew up with with a sense of responsibility for the words, um, you know, mm-hmm. that I say, and and I um, um, never been the sort of person that you know to make grand promises basically and then trying to figure out how to deliver on them. Uh, so we we took it a step at a time. Uh, we took it a step at a time. Um, uh, so, the early days were tough, uh, you know, they were slow. Um, I was fortunate again because of some of my early experiences um, to expect things to be tough and slow. Mm-hmm. Right. They ended up being even tougher and even slower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, thankfully, that's a distant memory, hopefully.
0: Yes. You know, a, a number of years have passed, but also you've done extremely well and that um, trust has been earned and rewarded. Um, we're going to talk about other things. Mm-hmm. So just to finish off th- this section, um, how's it going now?
1: Uh, look, uh, today I would say um, part of me is, is, is walking into the office. I, I love walking to the office, by the way. I'm, I'm, I, um, I mean, I, I, I work from home when I, when I have to, but I love being in the office. I love being around people. Um, and a big part of me is like a proud father. Mm -hmm. I walk into the office and I see, uh, you know, just an incredible team that we have built, uh, which gives me more pride and more joy than any of the financial metrics, uh, you know, associated with the business. Um, Look, I'm really really proud. I'm really proud in terms of where we're at. So the business is in a really good spot. Um, You know, we're managing now over $25 billion dollars on behalf of uh, over eight hundred thousand uh, australians um, i think there's about eight million australians that invest um, according mm-hmm. to the asx data so one in ten australians uh, basically trust us ba- mm-hmm. back to this point of trust uh, trust us with their money um, that is immensely uh, rewarding uh, of course um, i also do not forget the sense of responsibility of course that it brings because the 25 billion dollars is a you know it's an impressive number but at the end of the day um, it is, you know, every one of those 800,000 people have their own individual story. You know, for somebody, it's their savings towards a down payment mm-hmm. on, a, on, on, a, on an apartment or a house that they want to buy. Uh, for somebody, it's um, the education funds for their grandchildren, perhaps. Um, you know, for somebody, it's their retirement money. So I um, and, and we as a, as a business take that responsibility uh, very seriously. Um, so today, of course, it's um, you know the business is, is is much larger. It's got scale. Um, at the same time, I'm very excited about the future. Um, we are still finding uh, incredible opportunities to innovate. Uh, we are very fortunate to be masters of our own destiny, um, and and again, sort of being able to keep that uh, entrepreneurial spirit and 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 you know that fire hose of opportunities that we uh, you know sort of that you mentioned earlier. I mean, it's still there, and and I am I'm just absolutely blown away by how much uh, innovation and how much opportunity um, we're still able to come up with. Mm. uh, You know, twelve years uh, into the uh, into the journey. Congratulations, it's phenomenal. I'm also understanding
0: as as I'm talking to you, I have done so far. The skill set and the attributes that maybe explain that success. You know, the the. The realization that it's people's life savings, the importance you place on trust, uh, the mathematical, analytical stuff, uh, the more creative stuff, and then um, the feeling that you're a people person. You know, you enjoy coming into the office and you're proud of the team. That's quite an unusual mix. You know, we, you know, in business, p- people often bring one or two of those things and are exceptional at them, but m- maybe not um, across some of the other areas. So I can kind of, I'm getting a sense here of why you've been successful. Um, but I want to turn now to something else that I know is very close to your heart uh, and has taken up quite a lot of your energy in more recent times. Um, and I want to talk about the United Ukraine appeal. I'd like to talk about how you got involved with it. Um, but we should probably start by you explaining what it is.
1: Um, first of all, thank you. Um, uh, United Ukraine Appeal is a uh, registered Australian uh, non-for-profit um, that I had set up, uh, you know, with a small team um, just about 12 months ago, uh, following the uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine by uh, Russia. Um, the personal story that we started with uh, and my background—you uh, growing up in growing up in Ukraine. Um, had left me um had left me in the early days uh in a really in a really difficult um you know sort of state of anger and as i sort of uh uh, sometimes refer to as almost paralysis basically Mm. i was glued uh you know to the to the tv screens uh when putin uh invaded ukraine i was um you know um, scrolling twitter uh and 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 the news of course were you know sort of everywhere and it was pretty dark so the first the first uh, few weeks were pretty difficult in that I wasn't really able to focus on anything um, other than that, and I wasn't really being productive in any way. I was just sort of just consumed by this, um, uh, you know, sort of by this news flow. And, and and of course, the the natural reaction is is anger. Basically, how can how can how can that happen? You know, how can they do this? Mm. Um, and again, um, just going back to my upbringing, you know, I grew up. Um, in a country where people have died uh, you know russians and ukrainians have died side by side you know defending their you know their country against yeah. against nazi germany and um you know I, I remember you know vividly the stories that my grandfather um you know had told me about about when he was uh, left without mother and father basically age 11. um he was cared uh, he was in care of a of a soviet Um, army regiment basically because there was nobody else to look after him and he went through the war um being looked after by russians and ukrainians and georgians and you know they were just they were just together like all as one so i certainly could not compute uh for Mm -hmm. for quite some time uh how this whole thing could could end up like this basically but again the one thing that that i um, with the help of my wife uh, was able to stamp myself out of it basically, um, mm-hmm. you know, reasonably um, reasonably quickly, even though not as quickly probably as I um, as I should have and really started focusing on um, you know just reality that, you know it's not going to help anybody, people being angry like me being angry and others being angry ultimately is not going to change a thing. Uh, what can make a difference and what can change, change things uh, is action and and Um, United Ukraine Appeal is essentially uh, an action oriented, um, you know, non for profit uh, focused on delivering uh, critical humanitarian aid uh, swiftly um, without uh, bureaucracy uh, and without overhead, um, you know, Mm -hmm. directly to those in need.
0: And um, I'm going to talk to you briefly, get you to to talk about overheads. Uh, But before I do, yeah, I, I, I mean that 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 move from um, shock and disbelief through to action, then compels you to do something. You described it as a not-for-profit, and I apologize. This is maybe just being a technical person in the industry. Just for everybody's sake, you're a, you're also a registered charity. Yes, we are. Yes. <laughs> uh, that operates as a non-profit, and you are able to receive donations and offer a tax deduction to yes. Australian taxpayers. Yes, thank you. So, um. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that. So you 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 go into that um, scenario, and then um, you actually have to put this thing together. So how did you do that?
1: This is where this is where a bit of luck and a bit of experience uh, come together. Um, so I started the early in you know sort of the early um, action um, uh, you know sort of action focused uh, initiatives uh, were really done by by myself and my family uh, with the help of my wife, Jana. Um, we have started, uh, you know, sort of purchasing medical equipment. We've purchased ambulances. Uh, we've purchased a lot of humanitarian aid and delivered it directly, basically. And it became very apparent to me that it is doable. Like I've never thought about, obviously, you know, sort of the question of logistics and, you know, question of...
0: And that really interests me. I mean, that, that is one of the remarkable things about it. It's done quickly and effectively. But, um, I mean, this is new territory for you. Right? Yes. I mean, you've got connections and you've got business skills, but that whole logistical piece—the how, how I do
1: it—it uh, was—it uh, was incredible. Look, uh, again, learning. Right. Like you mm-hmm. learn from from um, you know sort of from uh, from scratch basically. So I have managed um, to contact um, some of my business uh, partners, basically, and some of my business contacts um, in Germany, and um, they have helped uh, locate uh, a number of ambulances. Um, by essentially just going around and knocking on doors of some of some you know, provinces, basically, and, and asking them if they have any secondhand ambulances that they could spare. Um, they couldn't spare them for free, but they said, we're happy to sell you. And I was like, okay, well, that's easy. Uh, mm. we, can, we, can, we can sort that out. And um, and of course, getting access into Ukraine was in itself um, a bit of an unknown. Mm. Like, how does it work? I mean, at that time, in the very early days, I mean, there were literally millions of Ukrainian refugees uh, going into Poland. Um, and, and of course, I mean, um, I sort of know the map of that, um, you know, of that region reasonably well. I kind of thought, okay, well, maybe there is a way um, for us to actually deliver um, through Poland, basically from Germany into Poland and into Ukraine. And again, uh, a few phone calls, I've got some family back in Ukraine um, they've connected me with a few people and, and literally this, this first delivery took place within three days of me speaking to somebody on the phone. That's remarkable. And, yep, so it got, it went from Germany into Poland and into Ukraine um, with pretty minimal, um, you know, I'd say minimal, um, uh, you know, disruption and, and, and minimal bureaucracy. But not just bureaucracy, you talked
0: about logistics, there's the, you know, there's the geography, but then there's the huge amount of risk which would have been also very difficult to assess, but which, if I think back to that time, was the dom- one of the dominant things at that time. You know, how would how would anybody? I I can't really fathom it. How would anybody, even with connections on the ground, be able to accomplish that in such a short time and navigate through those risks? Uh, did you feel like you were on top of the risks, or did you have to kind of go go
1: with it and say, "Well, we just have to make this happen"? I was in the latter category. I kind of I I knew obviously um you know that there are risks. Um um but I thought, you know, if if we can deliver if we can deliver like real help real quick, um and deliver it to those that really need it uh right now, um that's gotta be worth that's Mm -hmm. gotta be worth doing. Yeah. That's gotta be worth doing. So it was a calculated It was yes, it was definitely a calculated risk and um and we had learned a lot. Um, and again, I was kind of learning with my own money, basically. Um, yeah. But again, I was very, very fortunate, very, very lucky that I was able to, you know, sort of to pull this together. Mm. But just, just
0: tell us a little bit about that, because uh, I want to get two things from you before we move on. One is, it's not just about ambulances. You can tell us what else you've been, yes. been doing. But the other thing, which I think is quite important um, to certain listeners, is um, you mentioned that part of the kind of... The deal, if you like, the contract with the donor might be that that uh, they don't need to re- really worry about overheads as they might do in most traditional charity models, um, and that can only happen in my in my experience if somebody is prepared to foot the bill because
1: there's always a bill. And I, I know you've been quite open about this, but you want to talk about your model, the yes. funding model. Oh yes. Look, um, so yes, there's quite a few quite a few things to unpack here. So yeah. I might start with the you know with a model of of covering the costs. So uh, when I uh, you know, well before um, establishing United Ukraine Appeal, I have been involved in in a number of um, uh, you know as a supporter, and I still am, of course, involved as a supporter. Um, you know, of a number of charities. Um, you know, one of the things that is a reality of running a charity is that you typically have overheads, you have staff, um, you know, you have you have compliance costs, uh, you have reporting, um, um, some. Do it really well, and they manage those costs, um, you know, um, really um, tight. Um, some don't have the same ability, um, and the, um, you know, just going back into my financial, um, you know, sort of background, the cost to income ratio, um, you know, um, is a is a, you know is a wide range depending on uh, depending on the charity, mm. and depending on the circumstances. I felt that I am in the position um, to really make it easy uh, for those who. Uh, want to support United Ukraine Appeal and, and undertake to cover basically the costs, um, you know, of running the foundation so that every cent that is donated uh, finds its way yeah. uh, directly uh, into um, into the right, you know, towards the right causes, basically. So again, I'm fortunate, um, you know, to, um, to have been able to do that. Um, but I thought um, this is the least uh, that I could do. And especially... Um, especially um, at a time when when action is required basically I, mm. I didn't want to I didn't want to um, you know have any reasons basically um, you know sort of for people to, to feel uncertain any um, barriers yeah any barriers that's right and
0: this money when it when it goes out
1: the doors so to speak yeah um, ambulances but what else oh yes so look um, so I'll take a step back with your permission and just talk about um, uh, some of these, you know, initiatives. Um, and then I'll talk about, um, you know, sort of the future, basically. So some of the initiatives over the past 12 months and the future. So again, maybe because of my, you know, sort of business background, I really am running the United Ukraine Appeal with the help of um, my fellow directors um, as a startup almost, basically. Yeah. And and I liken it to a startup um, in, in many ways. In the, the first 12 months, and we are really coming up to just to that 12-month anniversary, um, was really... Um, um, I would say, um, very much like a startup. You know, everybody's doing everything. Uh, it's all hands on deck. Um, you don't have hierarchy. You don't have structure. Um, and and in particular, uh, given the situation, uh, you know, uh, in Ukraine, that you know the desperation basically on the ground. Um, you know, you're fighting fires all the time. Like there, are, there are requests uh, that are coming that are coming through that are urgent. Everything is urgent, right? right. Like not n- nothing that that we um, that. That, that we look at uh, with the united ukraine deal is not urgent basically and
0: i'm assuming in, you know you think of those business quadrants we look we look at everything would not only be in the um, urgent box
1: but it's in the important box exactly exactly right david so so the first um, you know sort of the first 12 months um, have been have been a real uh, mix of of urgent needs. So we started with urgent medical equipment and with ambulances. Uh, we continue to do that, of course, but we we uh, you know have an, uh, you know established supply lines and established almost um, almost a recurring um, type of a you know type of a supply model now with some of them. Um, as uh, you know, as 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 the war unfolded basically, and we started approaching winter in in Europe. Um, Russia started attacking the energy infrastructure, and they've they've um, you know destroyed almost fifty percent of the energy infrastructure in the country. Uh, winters are pretty harsh in Ukraine. Um, you know, when I was growing up there, it was regularly minus twenty, minus twenty five. <laughs> it's definitely not a place you want to be without um, mm. you know without a heater or without no. without something to keep you to keep you warm. Yep. Um, so we shifted focus, uh, you know, very quickly, uh, well in advance of of of, of winter. Um, towards, uh, you know, providing, um, you know, uh, electricity generators, um, you know, sort of power, um, you know, sort of storage, Mm. uh, et cetera. Mm. That was was big. And that required, again, us completely started to learn, um, uh, you know, a different supply chain, uh, you know, different chain of suppliers, different way of getting it in, um, starting to think about uh, what type of energy, um, you know, is going to be useful in, in, in operating those. So that was quite big. Um, Then there was a reality um, of of constant bombings, basically. Um, We've had um, 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 uh, several people contact us um, um, uh, with the idea of of building bomb shelters, basically. Mm -hmm. And we started... uh, We've done sort of quite a bit of... um, Thinking a bit of due diligence around it, like figuring out how do you build a bomb shelter, basically. I mean, again, there's not something that one.
0: Well, when would you have thought you'd need to consider ex- that? Uh,
1: just crazy, right? Like completely unfathomable, basically. Um, but there are some incredible, incredible people on the ground, um, you know, in Ukraine, who have who have made it happen. So we were fortunate to be able to fund uh, some of them. Um, so, for example, one of the bomb shelters um, in a in a city called Zaporizhia that we've uh, funded basically housed um, you know hundreds of people from Mariupol, which is one of the cities that um, unfortunately got completely mm. uh, destroyed in um, uh, you know in the war. and 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 to this day, I mean, there are people living in the bomb shelters basically that we have that we have built. Some of them have been retrofitted uh, from existing um, uh, you know from existing um, you know buildings basically. Mm. and um, you know sort of we would have installed or again we've funded the installation. Of uh, you know ventilation, um, you know heating, um, uh, you know sort of washing machines and dryers, basically for people to be able to to live there, uh, as well as you know power walls like we had Tesla power walls installed, mm. uh, you know in some of them, um, just really um, and and food supplies of course as well. So effectively creating sort of almost like small underground. Um, you know, I mean, they're not quite cities, they're not as vast as, as a city, but essentially, you know, underground cities yeah. uh, of, on a on small scale amazing. To, to enable people to live. Um, we have been involved in, in evacuating vulnerable uh, children um, who just couldn't get the care they need, um, basically, uh, with the... Um, uh, you know, sort of, just with the situation getting as as, as difficult and as desperate, and very recently, uh, very recently, and this will bring me to the to the future uh, a little bit. Uh, we have funded the launch of the, to, uh, to my knowledge, the first dedicated uh, mental health um, helpline in Ukraine. Mm. Um, I have been doing quite a lot of research and been speaking to a lot of smart people uh, who've, who've studied. Uh, the effects of war on the on the population, um, and and they've studied uh, that in, in in different countries um, over a time, um, which have gone through wars, and mental health is is one of the um, greatest sort of unspoken um, casualties, basically, uh, you know, of the war. I mean, people count, uh, you know, the dead and the wounded, but yeah. but people do not count, um, you know, those that survive with 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 just just the most horrendous uh, scarring for the rest of their lives. Well, and that you can't see that scarring and you, you can can't see, see a broken you, leg you, or you, exactly. a bullet hole. Exactly. So so um I have um I have really um started spending more and more time on that and and again have come across some incredible people in Ukraine um that have taken on uh you know the project which is actually now up and running. Um only, only four or so weeks ago, we, we got it up and running, but to my knowledge, it's the first dedicated uh, mental health helpline. Uh, it's helping um, those on the front line who are seeing death every day and are struggling to deal with it. Uh, it is helping um, families who have lost you know their sons and daughters and who have lost you know their fathers and, and mothers. Um, I mean, unfortunately, there are there are a lot of those, um, and we are. Um, mm-hmm. We are uh, committing um, to, to making this not just um, an initiative that will be of relevance during the war, but we also know that this will be very relevant for many years after the war ends. Every every war eventually ends. I hope this one um, obviously ends um, soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is that the, the scarring and the trauma um, is going to be there for a long time. Um so that if with your permission I'll just talk a little please. bit um just about the future, basically. Yeah. Well
0: do you mind if I I I was going to come to the future in a minute, please. but I do want to ask you a question. It's maybe quite a, a hard question. You can't well, these these are remarkable things done in a very short period of time, it may, it made a big difference, but you, you don't have infinite resources or nor can you fix every logistical problem. So you can't meet every need. How have you dealt with um Having to say no or, or having to be unable to help someone who's in need—how how has that been? It must have been very difficult.
1: It's heartbreaking. It's not just difficult; it is heartbreaking. Um, and and this is the this is the flip side of getting involved in the way that I have. Mm. Um, and I've thought about this again. Um, I've thought about it as a fair bit. Um, on the one hand, the easy thing is obviously just to you know um, to help is to. Um, um, is to try to help everyone, basically. Uh, but the reality is that, that you do need to prioritise and, and and there are areas where you can really help, um, you know, in a more meaningful way um, than, than maybe some of the other instances. Look, it, it, is, it is really, really um, horrendously difficult. Mm. There's, there's no other way of saying it. Um, uh, there are instances where we are unable to help um, we're trying to minimise those as much as possible. We work with a lot of other organisations. Um, the one thing that's easy, um, the one that says easy, is saying no to military requests. Mm. Uh, we don't get involved in anything lethal, in anything military related. We, we're only humanitarian focused. But even with that, um, of course, there are there yeah. are some um, there are some limits. Um, it is it is tough. It yeah. is tough.
0: Um, and, and Alex, this isn't designed as an advert,
1: you know, per se,
0: um, but. I think what you're saying there is underscoring if there's a case for people to support um, your work and the work of your fellow directors and the broader community that you're part of, then that's it in, in part, isn't it? In large part that there's an unmet need and there's still so much more to do. But um, if we talk about so much more to do, perhaps we can go back to what you said, which is uh, let's talk about the future. This is going to be a long haul. Yeah. Um, needs are going to change, evolve. Um, and it... Um, Hopefully, as you say, the war will end very soon. Um, but that will not mean the end by any means in terms of the need um, and the need to help people with suffering and, and the need to rebuild, etc. So that opens up a huge um, thinking process, if, uh, if nothing else. What are you looking at? How are you thinking about it?
1: Yes. Uh, thank you for that question. And this, this, um, this is something that's been on my mind for um, – you know, for a long time, but really over the over the quiet period around Christmas, I have spent several weeks really planning uh, what what I hope the future of United Ukraine Appeal um, will look like, and um, and my uh, you know fellow directors of you know have been very supportive of those longer term plans. So the future, the future basically, and this again, I'm just going back to the world of business. I kind of um, have have taken a step back um, and have thought about. Um, okay, well, we were in the early days of, of a startup, basically, uh, where everybody's doing everything and you've got this kind of almost chaotic um, sort of flood of, of, of needs and requests. Uh, and we were responding to them in a thoughtful way, but at the same time, in a way which, which, um, you know, sort of to an extent was was reactive to what was needed. Um just with the benefit of a bit of hindsight and with the benefit of a bit of experience and with the benefit of being able to take a step back, I've kind of thought about, you know, the next 12 months and the future more generally. And and the future for United Ukraine Appeal is going to be centred around some long-term strategic priorities, uh, which will um, take a, um, you know, sort of a good chunk of our time, Um, but at the same time, um, uh, complemented by some tactical uh, or shorter term projects basically as and when they come up because again we are then in, in a very uncertain uh, Ukraine is in a very uncertain um, uh, obviously environment and things can change very quickly. So the longer term strategic areas that we really want to lean into and we are starting to lean into uh, number one is mental health. Uh, we talked about it earlier um, the um, you know sort of the center that we this, that we started this helpline. Um, it's currently staffed um, with 60, uh, trained uh, psychologists um, that are um, operating the, you know, sort of the helpline. Uh, we have collaborated um, with an Israeli charity that has provided specialist training to some of those um, uh, already trained uh, psychologists. Uh, we're off to a good start, but it's still very early days. Um, we want to continue building and continue scaling, um, you know, into mental health, you um, uh, initiative, because we know that the ultimate goal of reconstruction of the country post-war is going to be, to a significant extent, a function of the population being able, um, you know, sort of to live themselves and, yep. and, and, to, and to make it happen, um, to turn that into reality. So, so we are operating, um, hopefully, um, a couple of steps ahead, um, um, uh, and we will continue Uh, we'll continue uh, investing in in making that happen because I think this is an area where, especially as Australians, um, where the mental health um, industry and the the, the focus on people's mental health and the um, the industry um, and the capabilities are really significant. So I feel that as Australians, we can bring money to the table in funding those initiatives, but we can also bring some real intellectual property and some real experience to the table. And if I may take the opportunity kind of for a shameless plug, um, if, if there are listeners that are involved in, in initiatives um, around helping Australians with mental health, um, and if there are opportunities for us to learn if there are opportunities for us to leverage some of that work this is of course separate from from any financial sort of help that may um, uh, um, you know sort of that may be appropriate but but even that in itself um, is a really big um, area area where I think we can we can tangibly help so mental health is one uh, children uh, and orphan children uh, in particular uh, is an area of, of great concern um, Uh, to me again i talked a little bit earlier about my grandfather being orphaned um uh you know very early on in his life um he was he was one of the lucky ones basically that that actually ended up making it and building a family um and you know here i am sitting Mm. with you in australia basically uh talking about it um it's a it's a horrendous uh it's a it's a horrendous experience um obviously um there are now, you know, thousands upon thousands of new orphan children, um, you know, in Ukraine, um, um, and they need help. And it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a really difficult area, obviously, um, in that Ukraine, even before this war, um, you know, broke out, uh, was still dealing with the vestiges of the Soviet past, um, in particular when it comes to orphans. So the Soviet system of dealing with orphans was really all about, um, you know, sort of building these um, state-run and institutionalized orphanages, basically, which are just the most terrible way, you know, sort of for, for children to grow up. Uh, there's there's no shortage of research and statistics around, you know, the rate of criminality and, uh, you know, recidivism um, amongst those that that, that that grow up in these institutional orphanages. Um there is a real opportunity, there's a real opportunity um, uh, post-war um, to make a clean break um, from that institutional orphanage sort of mindset. Mm. And again, Australia Australia has a phenomenal um, culture of, of foster parenting. Um, it doesn't exist in Ukraine. Yeah. Basically, it doesn't exist in Ukraine. Um, so one of the things that we are very focused on and we're doing quite a lot of work on, we're doing projects already um, to help, um, children, um, but but the bigger, um, um, you know, the, the longer-term vision basically and the longer-term hope is to really play a, an important role um, in helping the country break away from that institutional orphanage mindset and provide um, education and partner with, um, you know, with the local sort of, uh, you know, sort of authorities to help uh, introduce the culture and the laws that will support foster parenting basically Mm -hmm. so if we can help if we can help make that happen um even in a small way i think i think it would again it will be translated um you know in you know in generations that that follow um into uh, you know sort of into a much better you know sort of much better situation i really
0: like that alex because what appeals to me is you've got the direct human benefit of helping people that have been traumatized but you're also quite clearly you've decided on a strategic long-term level to try to lay the foundations for a better society uh, and avoid the social cost that would come with the system that you're trying to improve. Um, so I think that's fantastic and, um, you know, take my head off to you. Um, I'm going to finish with two things. One is I'm going to ask you to reflect because we've talked about the future, but reflect on the past year or so um, and what you've, what you've learned um, as a businessman, as a charity director, you know, as a human. Uh, and then um, we'll close out with just a final question around, um, w- you know, what you see in a broader sense going forward um, for yourself involved with the foundation. So maybe just the reflection to begin.
1: Well, look, I've always been a big believer that there's no such things as impossible uh, in life. And last year um, has, really, um, has really been um, a reminder um, that, you know, uh, both the, um, the breakout of the war, uh, which I thought was impossible, um, ended up being a reality. But the flip side, the reaction um, and the ability to actually make things happen, even though they seemed impossible, um, um, was, was was just just incredible. Um, and again, reflecting on that um, is, is definitely uh, is quite um, uh, it's quite it's quite a reminder um, that that you can make things happen, basically in life. Um, the biggest probably reflection for me, as an individual, was just the amount of goodwill that exists in our society. I have never ever experienced that in my life. I talked about how warm Australia has been to me as an immigrant. Um, I was accepted in this society, uh, into this society, um, and I'm, I'm as proud an Aussie as they come. Um, I um, have been also uh, welcomed into into the world of business and have managed to, um, uh, of course, start and, and build a business, but in the in the process make genuine friendships and, and genuine connections. Since starting the United Ukraine Appeal, I genuinely, David, have just been blown away how many fantastic people have come out just with offers of help and offers of help of all kinds, basically. Again, for some, it's financial help. For some, it's help with advice. Uh, For some, it's help with, you know, getting the logistics sorted out as to, you know, how to source, um, you know, how to source, uh, you know, meal kits, basically, Mm -hmm. from Poland, basically, to deliver them to Ukraine. Um, um, Just the amount of goodwill in our society is immense. And I have always been grateful, I've always been grateful for what we have, and I've always been grateful for the, for, for the good people around me. But the amount of good uh, in, in, in the world is actually incredible, is actually incredible. And that's not something that one gets to think about every day. But there is so much good in the world. This is the case for Australia, this is the case, uh, you know, for Europe, this is the case for the US. I have met you know, literally hundreds, probably thousands of people, basically over the past uh, twelve months, in different circumstances, in different um, in different situations, who are only there to do the right thing, who are only there to help. They want nothing in return. They just want help. They just want to help. And you know, for somebody, uh, um, you know, at my age, to to kind of have that as a reflection. Um, you know, so far into my life. Mm. Uh, it's just been just been incredible. Uh,
0: that's fantastic, Alex. I think you've answered my next question, which, which was going to be my final, but I'll add another one in place of it. My next one was, we talked about the future for the, for the appeal, um, but what about you? Obviously, you're you going to stay involved. I, I can almost guarantee that from what you've said and you're nodding for, for those that um, are not in the room. Um, which leads me with my final, final question then, which is, You've kind of then ended on quite a positive note. It reminded me of something I wanted to ask you. Um, we've heard so much about Ukraine that's not been good. You know, it's been for the wrong reasons lately. Um, I just wanted to kind of invite you. Tell us something really positive about Ukraine, the kind of stuff that people might not be hearing about. What, what, what can
1: you tell us that's really positive about Ukraine? <laughs> Look, uh, I won't talk about the food too much because this Eastern European food is... Um, you know, it tends to be quite uh, tends to be quite heavy.
0: Alex you're talking to an Englishman, here, yeah <laughs>
1: but, you know. You're in good company. That is very true. That is very true. Um, look um, Ukraine's a it is an incredible country. It is a country that's that's endured uh, a lot of hardship over the years. I mean, we we spent obviously a bit of time talking about World War II. I mean, there were wars previously, uh, you know, sort of prior to that. Um, you know, I grew up in a town in Ukraine that used to be um, used to be part of the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. uh, in the old days, and my wife, who's also um, originally from Ukraine, um, grew up in the town that was part of austro Hungary. Um, you know, sort of previously. So the borders, the borders. Uh, uh, in Ukraine have have been, um, you know, moving around, uh, you know, sort of over time. People are genuine. People are genuine. People have endured a lot of hardship. Um, they are welcoming and they are kind and they ultimately want to build um, you know they ultimately want to build a future basically for their families they want to build a future um, you know sort of um, for themselves so look um, I would say I would say people in Ukraine um, are definitely are definitely worth meeting They're definitely worth meeting and and hopefully in the future and I'm certainly not here uh, you know sort of to giving you plugs for the um, you know Ukrainian tourism Association <laughs> but uh, why not but uh, well, but but... Uh, but one day uh, one day um, as, as all wars uh, do, uh, this will this will end, and I am very hopeful um, that the country will will go through a um, a period of uh, reconstruction and rebuild, um, and and our uh, opportunity as Australians uh, will be uh, you know sort of to help make that happen through hopefully spending some of our um, you know some of our tourist dollars.
0: Let's hope the Ukrainian tourist association is really busy really soon. Yes, indeed. Um, I can say. Um, As a uh, uh, English Australian, I can say meeting an Australian with the Ukrainian element has been a a real pleasure. So, thank you so much for coming in. Congratulations on everything you've done. I think it's um, it's a remarkable achievement, and um, uh, it's it's a credit to you and your fellow directors and to the community that supported you. So, well done, and um, thank you again.
1: That's great. Thank you very much.
0: That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codacapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and nonprofit profit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to Codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.